0: Will you join me? Now, I want to say this is a longer passage, but it's one of the most debated in all of our faith. And I invite you today as as we read it together, just to let the words sink in. Don't worry about what you've heard about it before. Just think about the words we read together. Let's join together. Some Pharisees came to him and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery." His disciples said to him, if such is the case and with his wife, it is better not to marry. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When Pastor Mark called me up and said, hey, I'd like you to pick up this sermon. Uh, I I need you to preach, take about 25 minutes, explain everything that the scripture has to say about marriage, divorce and remarriage. I thought, what could possibly go wrong? Right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most controversial passages in scripture. And, and the whole debate about what makes a marriage, what doesn't, is divorce all right for Christians, is it not, remarriage, etc.? is very hard. And, and I know that, that sometimes when people know that this topic is even coming up, they don't even go to church. I can say that as a divorced person, when I was divorced, I can remember being in worship and hearing the preacher just pound on divorced people. I don't want to go back either. I want you to know today that it's not going to be that way. Acts 2 is a redemptive community. Whatever your marital status is, single, married, divorced, remarried, widowed, not even interested, whatever it is, we honor you. And this is your home spiritually. And God has a place for each of us and gives us different gifts and different ways to live them out. It's such a hard topic that that today in the passage, you get to hear the great minds of Jesus' time debated, which is pretty powerful stuff in just what's well, really a short passage. The, the Pharisees represented the greatest thinkers of their time in religion, in the Jewish faith. And of course, there's Jesus. And they come together and they have this big debate about what is marriage, what's not, is it okay to get divorced, is it not, under what circumstances, etc. And And you think the passage maybe is about Jesus. It's really not. I mean, he's teaching, but he knows what the answer is. So you think maybe it's about the Pharisees, but it's really not. They're not there for for, for religious reasons. They're not there to build anybody up. They're there to catch Jesus in a trap. Uh, It's it's a political thing for them. And then we realize it's for the disciples, uh, people like us. Jesus allows this to happen this day, this debate, so that the regular folk, can hear the debate. The problem is it gets so wrapped up in legalities and, and technicalities that when you get to the end of the passage, the disciples say, and this is my Oki translation of the Greek text, what the heck? Right? What just happened? Right? They're left bewildered, bumfuzzled, and confused. If you've ever had a serious relationship, you've probably had that experience too. What just happened? You know, what What did they say? What's going on? And that's exactly... What happens to the disciples? It starts with a concept that Jesus refers to. And the concept is is about falling in love and being in a family and what that means. My wife and I dated for about over three years before we got married. These are her two daughters. They were her two daughters in this picture. And about 20 minutes later, they were my daughters then as well. So it tells you where this was. We dated about three years. We'd both been married before. So we were being very, very careful, and one night, Prudy's daughters gathered me up and said, why haven't you married our mom? What's wrong with her? And I thought, "Eh, that's a good question, and then they said, or what's wrong with you? Right? So we decided we ought to get married, and and on a beautiful, amazing, wonderful day, we did that thing where we, we walked down the aisle, and this is Memorial Drive United Methodist Church in Tulsa where my my soon-to-be brother-in-law was a pastor. You know, I'm walking up the aisle, he's not my brother-in-law. I'm walking back down the aisle, he's my brother-in-law. And it was the most amazing transformational experience in my life. And right before we do this, right before, you know, we had the wedding and that's a picture of us walking down the aisle afterwards, right? One of Prudy's daughters pulled me over and says, if you're going to do this, make it Forever. That's a pretty powerful statement. And that was our desire. We wanted to make it forever. We'd both experienced the heartbreak of divorce. We never wanted to go through that again. We wanted to make it forever. And, and I remember the experience of, of walking up the aisles. It was about 1,500 in debt from seminary and my car. And I had a little apartment. It wasn't even one bedroom. It was a little studio apartment. And, uh, and that's about all I had in the world. And I walk up the aisle and my brother-in-law to be, the pastor says a few words, 15, 20 minutes worth of church words to us. And, and then we turn around and we exchange rings and the vows and we were walking out and suddenly I have two kids, a mortgage, payments, and thinking about the future, how we're going to save for college and five dogs. My world just changed radically, you know, radically, incredibly different in just those 20 minutes. We were so blessed. The the Methodist Church offered a course back then, a weekend retreat for blended families. And and I'd gone to that and and that saved us. Otherwise, we'd have been in real trouble because what I knew about marriage had nothing to do with what I was just starting to get into. Because marriage is about more than, than maybe what we grow up thinking it's about or what we've been told or what the culture says. In fact, I love the Jewish marriage ceremony. Um, we, we are married into a Jewish family and, um, and it's just beautiful. In a Jewish wedding, you may not know this, there are seven blessings, seven blessings during the ceremony. And this morning I wanted to form the sermon around those blessings. Not all seven, don't worry. You know, you'll get out in time for lunch, but around four of them. It starts off with the blessing of the wine. I'm sorry, that's gonna to have to be another sermon. That's, that's not today's, right? We're talking about, about those relationship blessings that Jesus and the Pharisees all knew that day as they began this debate. It starts off like this. There's a prayer that recognizes God created us for intimacy. And I would add, and some of us find that in marriage. That's the place some of us find it. God created us for spiritual intimacy. In fact, Jesus reminded them of the text. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become what? One flesh, right? That's from Genesis 2.24, the creation story. It's how we're put together. It's in our DNA to live in relationship and to find that close, powerful, spiritual kind of relationship. The Hebrew there for for one flesh is uh, is a powerful word, basar, and it, it does mean flesh like skin. It does mean that but it means much much more it's it, it 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 it's really about our spiritual intimacy it's really about how we connect at the deepest level and in the jewish wedding uh, as as the prayers the blessings are are read during the ceremony there's that first opening bit a couple of blessings that that celebrates that god created us in his image and that god created us to be in relationship with each other those are the second and third Blessings in a Jewish wedding. Again, that Jesus and everybody there in the audience that day would have known. In fact, that spiritual intimacy and closeness was centered in the family in Judaism, still is. No Jewish couple in Jesus' day would have even been able to conceive of having what? Separate spiritual lives. That's just, nobody would have even thought of that. That would have been inconceivable to them. Because you have to remember how Judaism functioned, especially in those days. As you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, we, we read through in the stories of, say in the book of Acts, and, and we read about synagogues. Jesus taught in the synagogues, the apostles following Jesus, that so they went out in the world, taught in the synagogue. And we tend to think of that through our church minds and say, oh, those are like local churches. They weren't. Synagogues were meeting houses. They were community centers. It's only much later that they become places of worship, but not in this time. In this time, it's where you meet to celebrate a wedding or where you meet to celebrate a birth or where you meet to have a meal after a funeral or where you meet because a special teacher, you see this in Jesus' story, comes to town to speak to the people. So the, the house of worship was the temple. And most Jewish families only went there a few times in their life, maybe only two or three. So, the center of worship and spirituality was in the home. Everything was was placed there. And and a couple was called to to unite in spiritual intimacy. That was the heart. That's why the the, the first two, the second and third blessings in Jewish wedding focus on that, because everything else comes out of that. To have that spiritual intimacy then creates a, a spiritual culture in the home that can be passed on to the children. Sharing spiritual intimacy is the heart of marriage. Everything else comes after that. Now, I'm not saying the other stuff's not important. My wife made sure we had a Valentine's dinner with some friends. We had a Valentine's dinner as a couple, and she informs me there's at least one more coming. So, you know, those things are important, right? Flowers, a good meal, a gift, all of that's important. But it all is supposed to come out of this shared spiritual intimacy. The problem for a lot of us is we really don't know how to do that. Most of us don't really know how to share spiritual intimacy. And that's where the what comes in? To the church, that's right. The church is here to help us. The church is here to, to help create that culture that we could experience here and then take into our relationships, take into our marriage, even take into our relationships with our children and our family. We were a brand new family I had two brand new stepdaughters. I took out of Putnam City and down to a little tiny town in a little small Methodist church that was about the size of the Sunday school class they were used to going to uh, where they attended St. Luke's downtown Oklahoma City. And it was a big, giant culture shock for them. And so we struggled with, with how would we have a spiritual life together? Pretty was a brand new preacher's wife. She had never done that before. I, I wanted to have that, but we weren't really sure how to do it. And it seemed to us that it would be really important just to talk about our faith. And we tried some mechanical things, because I'm kind of wired that way. Okay, on Monday night, we meet at 9 o'clock as a family, and we pray. That lasted a week, right? Okay, Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, we meet, and as a family, we read the Bible. That lasted less than a week. That was, they didn't even show up for that, right? So I thought about these two young girls that had come into my life. I thought about this new wife and how I wanted to be spiritually close to my wife because I felt like that I had missed that in my first marriage. I felt like that was the key ingredient that I had missed, even though I'd been married to a pastor. Think about that. I thought about these two young girls and they liked food. So we bribed them. Every Sunday after church, we would drive into the big city of Norman, and and was, you know, we could go there and eat and they could do a little shopping and they were thrilled with that. We'd drive into the big city of Norm, we'd go to Chili's. And we would sit down and after we rummaged through, through all the chips and ranch we could possibly cart in, I think they brought it in 50 gallon drums, you know. After that, we would sit down and we would just talk about our faith. And it started off real simple. What did you get out of church today? Was there anything in the sermon that was important to you? A lot of times the girls would say, did you preach today? What? Right? What about the music? Did you hear something there that touched your heart? I'd look at my wife and say, was there a time today that you felt close to God? And that became the most important thing for Prudy and me. To just have that moment, we said, where did you experience God? And pretty soon our our kids began to pick that up as well. And we, we, we developed this culture of, of sharing our faith. And we're very blessed that the, the girls have first cousins and Andy and uncle that are all very great Christian folk, all Methodist happens to be. And, and we could do that even with our extended family. But those Sunday afternoons at Chili's, if you me the best part of, of, our, of our time as a family when we first started out, I would always say that. In fact, it got to the point that something kind of amazing happened. One day, one of the girls said, I've got a friend and she's struggling. Can I bring her to Chili's with me this week? And the girls would start to bring their friends because they wanted them to experience that spiritual intimacy of being able to talk about God and what God's doing in our lives and and those places where we don't even see God and we struggle. And every Sunday for all these years, we still do that especially my wife and I, our kids are grown up and they have their own families now. But We still sit down Sunday afternoon and say, where did you experience God today? Did God speak to you today? When the, when the time comes for, for one of us to go on to glory, those will be the conversations I remember the most. We've done the Disney, we've done the cruises, we've done all those things But nothing is as powerful as those conversations that we share on Sunday afternoons. That's something you can do in your family, in your marriage, with your kids as well. Now, none of that would have happened if our lives had ended after our first marriage and we were divorced. But God is powerful, and God always gives what? Second chance, that's right. Yeah, in fact, in the story, Jesus recognizes that not all marriages last. Now, I can remember hearing this text preached on when I was a kid and nobody mentioned that. But if you pay attention to what's being said there, Jesus recognizes that not all marriages last. The covenant can be severed, he says, because of hard hearts. Now, the Pharisees are debating, why is this happening? Is this allowed? Etc. Etc. And Jesus basically says to them, this is a broken world. And we're broken people. And sometimes brokenness enters our life in a way that causes disastrous outcomes. But God is a God of grace. In marriage and in any other part of our life where where we have sin and brokenness, God is a God of grace. God always offers us the chance to start over. I can remember when I was divorced and I would go to the altar every Sunday, we had Sunday night church, and I would, I would go to the altar every Sunday night, and I would pray that, that I would find the right person to marry and that we would have kids and have a family because that's just the way I was wired. That's something I really wanted in my life. And uh, the way I had it planned for God to do it was I would marry a woman, find a woman. We'd fall in love. We would get married. And two or three years down the road, we would start having kids. I didn't say that that way, though, to God. I was quite literal. I said, God, give me a family, a wife and a family. And God did it all at once. Right, just boom, here you go. Here's the whole thing. Kids, wife, dogs, mortgage. Every, it's just, here you go. You know, So you got to be careful about that. And, and and the one thing I knew is I fell in love with Prudy. And, and I shouldn't say this, but I, I, it, just to be honest, I'm, I went out to dinner with her. We, we met in church. I went out to dinner with her. And 15 minutes into that first date, I said, I'm going to marry her. I'm never going to marry anybody else again. I mean, just I just was that head over heels in love with her. But the thing that I knew was that I wanted this marriage to last. To fulfill what her kids said to me. Make it forever. And I had to learn. Because my experience is, as a person, as a pastor, as a therapist, my experience is, that though we get the chance to start over, it will fail unless we come to grips with how we failed the first time. The easiest thing to do in a relationship, in marriage, whether you're married or divorced or whatever, the easiest thing to do is make a list of where the other person falls short, right? And I will just tell you this, if you make that list, I don't. don't ask me how I know this, but if you make that list, and hand it to them, it's liable to get wadded up and thrown back in your face. I'm just saying, just be aware. But what I can do is I can look at myself. I have control over my life. I have control over my behaviors, my attitude, my spirituality. I have control over all of that. In order to, to, to make our second marriage work, we went to counseling. I was so blessed. I went to Dr. Curtis Nye, a great Methodist pastor. Uh, he had been the Baptist church, Baptist pastor in my, my town when I was growing up. He became a Methodist. Later, he actually even became my associate pastor uh, when I was at Church of the Sermon. But, but he was the therapist and, and I went to him. And he would say at the end of every session, and I was recovering from divorce, thinking about moving into this new relationship. And then as I grew in this new relationship, he'd say, Robert, you're gonna be happy again. He would say, it wasn't a question. It was like, Robert, do you want to be happy again? Or Robert, do you think you'll ever... It wasn't that, it's Robert, you're going to be happy again. The only question is, when are you going to change things so that you can get there? How soon are you going to do that? How soon are you going to make the changes in your life that you need to make in order to get there? God opens those doors and gives us second chances, whether it's recovering from divorce or restarting our marriage just kicking our relationship up a year or two. But we've got to take responsibility for ourselves, our behavior. Now, that's the amazing thing in the conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees that day. Everybody's talking about somebody else and what somebody else ought to do with their relationship. And it just leads to disaster. Nothing happens. At the end of that great meeting of the minds, the common folk are left sitting around going, what the heck? What did they say? Until we deal with our own stuff, things can't get better. Now, fortunately, thinking about again the blessings at a Jewish wedding, there's a, there's a great blessing in there that really helps us understand how do we fulfill that? How do we live in this close, intimate relationship that God has created us to live in, and 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 and, and to be connected at the deepest level? How does that happen? You have to focus on forgiveness. I don't know of any successful relationship that's that's made it through the decades without having forgiveness at the heart of that experience. God forgives us so we forgive others, right? We're gonna say that prayer, the Lord's prayer here in just a couple of minutes. At the heart of that prayer, it, it's it's about forgiving because we've been forgiven. There's this wonderful thing about that in in that if you evaluate your own life, not the other person, not what they need to do or change or correct, but your own life, pretty soon you're gonna be craving forgiveness. I can remember at the end of our first year of marriage, we had a a very, mmm, instructional moment together. Instructional moment, if you can read between the lines. My my wife was a boss, she owned a chain of stores, one at Penn Square, and she was used to evaluating employees. So at the end of the year, when she did her employee evaluation, she evaluated me. And I didn't do that well. And I was in trouble. I, I didn't do that well. And I thought about what to say, and there were several things that crossed my mind. The Holy Spirit blessed me and locked my mouth up for just long enough to get through that. And then I looked at my wife and I said something that's become a catchphrase for me throughout this entire marriage we've had now for decades. I said, honey, lower your expectations. (laughs) Right? Lower your expectations. If you have these high expectations, you're going to be constantly disappointed in me. Lower your expectations, right? But the heart of what we learned is we have to forgive one another and even harder forgive ourselves. You have to keep this fight from becoming episode twenty-nine of the fights you've had before. Couples get locked in what we as therapists call core scenes, where they're fighting the same fight over and over and over again. They don't even know what the fight's about. Oh, today it's about the in-laws. Tomorrow it's about the grocery shopping. Next week it'll be about the cleaning. But it's the same fight emotionally, over and over and over again, and it never gets resolved. And it stays locked up and miserable when we miss the call to forgive and to allow ourselves to be forgiven. At the heart of, of second chances for divorced people, at the heart of, of, of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth chances for married couples, the engine that keeps it all working is forgiveness. See, that day as they, as they enter Judea, and that's always a key phrase in the New Testament. When you read that, get, get your ears up, something important is about to happen. Because they have been in the northern part of Israel where things were a lot more relaxed. People just lived their lives. A lot of those people were former slaves. They were just glad to be free and alive, relatively free. But now they move into Judea. And Judea is always, the area around Jerusalem right? And it's filled with people who at that time thought they were really superior. They were the best of the best of the Jews. You weren't really a good Jew unless you lived near Jerusalem, they thought. And that day on that plane, when they come out and they meet Jesus as he comes into Judea, that that region around Jerusalem, it's very serious. And it's all about rules. And it's all about order. And it's about who's right and who's wrong. And Jesus said, it's not about any of that. It's about forgiveness. It's about loving in a higher plane. It's about recognizing, not not trying to find the spiritual intimacy we're created for. It's about recognizing that it's right there in front of us. And God gives us that opportunity to experience that over and over again. But the Pharisees didn't buy it. In fact, they, they quote Deuteronomy 24. If a man, read this with me. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. So that was the rule. You know who has all the power the men do, right? In this deal. It's just what the man decides. And there were two schools that we'll, we'll talk about, or maybe we won't, but, but there were two schools and they were debating and they were trying to draw Jesus into the politics of it. The key phrase is, is something indecent, erwat de which which I have to apologize to you for the way we've translated that in English sometimes. Sometimes you'll, you'll see it as unchastity or being unfaithful. That's not what the text says. That's not, not the words that they spoke. That's just the way we, in English translations have done it because preacher types and theologian types are very uncomfortable talking about intimate relationships, right? Just to be honest. It, it, it describes something else. It's, it's actually the Hebrew language for what happens in the bathroom. I know, really uncomfortable now, aren't we? Room just to go silent, right? I so said, what the text really says is when something does, somebody does something that, that's just obscene in its vulgarity and its violence, covenant's broken. Now, sometimes that's very dramatic. And sometimes it's something that happens over the years in little tiny ways. It's heartbreaking for me as a pastor. Sometimes I've sat in my office with a couple and I've had to share with them, you're divorced, you just don't know it. Legally, you're still married, but the covenant is dead. And remember, we said God is a God of second chances. And if you find yourself in that place or close to it, come see any of us who are, the pa- are pastors here, we can help you get through that. People recover from that and become closer than ever, but you gotta be willing to work at it and do what's right. What Jesus reminds them is, is sometimes in human relationships, things become so broken, it just seems like there's no way to recover. Two schools would, would fight this out and they would argue about how bad did you have to be to get out of a marriage? Can you imagine that? Debating, you know, which sin is the one that gets you kicked out or, or can you, you can do this and stay in, in it. The school of Hilel was one of the famous rabbis said a husband could divorce a spouse just for burning the toast. Just for burning the toast. If it was based on burning things, I would have been divorced about 18 times now from my, my wife, right? I'm not going to say anything about her cooking. I won't do it, but on my cooking, and I do most of the cooking, right? So they're debating how bad do you have to be or how lousy does your partner have to be? It's so sad and so broken and it's so off track that they think that that's what human relationships are about. You got to get the rules and learn the rules and follow the rules and be exact in the rules. And some people are winners and some people are losers. It's a zero sum game. That's not how relationships are at all. Relationships are about giving your best and becoming your best. When our daughters would ask, ask us about, should I, should I keep dating this guy? My question to them was always the same. Does it bring out the best in you? And lots of times they would say, no. I say, well, that's not the guy you should be dating. Right? This relationship, when it's right, should bring out the best of you and make you your best. Call you to live at the highest level of relationship. The tragedy on the Jewish plane, the plains of Judea that day, was that nobody was interested in talking about love except Jesus. They keep trying to throw it into politics and debate and proving one side's a winner and another side's a loser. And Jesus refuses to give in to that. Because Jesus is all about love and mercy, grace and forgiveness. Which are the cornerstones of having that spiritual intimacy that we're all created for you know what we're supposed to do in a close intimate relationship? I hope you don't, because I'm going to tell you and they'll ruin the end of the sermon if you already know, right? So the last blessing, the seventh blessing in a Jewish wedding, and again, that's what they would have all been thinking about that day. The last blessing, the final blessing is a blessing that calls for, we are called to joy. We're called to share joy. Let's say that together. Would you just would you say that with me? We are called to share joy. That's the heart of it. That's what it's about. That's why we're created. And in a Jewish wedding in Jesus' time, the wedding he blessed at Cana, you remember that? That would have been the last words the rabbi said to the young couple "We're getting married. This is who we are. In fact, I love that that last blessing prayer in a Jewish wedding, because it asks God to bring us mirth, kind of an old word, and laughter. It doesn't ask for wealth or security or health. We can ask for things. Those are all good things to ask for. But the heart of it is bring us laughter. Fill this relationship with laughter and joy. Somebody forgot that that day on the Judean plains as they tried to put Jesus to the test. There was no joy in the kind of relationships the Pharisees were describing. None at all. At the heart of the most intimate relationships of our life, the ones we are created and called to live into, there's joy. Not every day, I understand that. But at its heart and and what powers that relationship is joy. And we're not called to, to, to sit around and wait for the other person to bring it. We're called to give it as a gift and look for ways to share it. My wife and I have gone 14 months of just doctors and hospital. She's been desperately ill. And, and this week I said, we're going to go on a trip. We're going to go on a vacation. We're going to have three days. It's just going to be us. She was a little nervous. She was excited, but nervous. She wondered how could she do it. She doesn't walk very well. Shawna Walker. And it got to the day and I said, Are you ready to go? And she said, yeah. She said, can I help me pack? And I said, you don't have to. We're just going to stay in our house, turn off the phones, and just be together. We've had one of the most blessed, incredible experiences together as a couple. And joyful and happy. You see, that day on the Judean plain when they were quoting Moses and the Ten Commandments and talking about the hardness of heart, which, which is, is a way of referring back to Moses and the Jews being in slavery. You think about Pharaoh, had hardness of heart, and, and that's what they want? No, says Jesus, that's not relationship at all. That's some twisted, broken version of it, but that's not relationship. I wish instead they had they'd chosen a passage from Song of Solomon, Maybe you've read that, maybe you've never heard of it. It's a part of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. And typically, Jewish folk love it, and Christians, we don't know what to do with it. Because it's a love story between a man and a woman. And it's a little book in the Bible. Go home, read it for Valentine's, it'll take you 30 minutes to read the whole book. But there's a passage in there that says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And when you go to Israel, couples typically will get this ring, a man's version and a woman's version that say that in Hebrew. If you could see it up close, you wouldn't be able to read it because the letters are in Hebrew. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. You probably have heard that and it comes from Song of Solomon. I do sometimes wonder if there are a lot of American tourist folks wandering around home with rings that in Hebrew say this silly tourist played way too much for this little trinket in Hebrew. I don't know, right? But it comes from Song of Solomon and it's this intimate portrait of a relationship. And at first the church didn't know what to do with it. They said, nah, I think we better leave that out of the Bible. It was a hot debate for a long time. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit led us to have it. It's this close relationship. And, and in this passage, the little monks talk of, about this as the rhapsody of spring. It's the rhapsody of a couple being together. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful text. I'll just read it to you. and Just listen to the words. This is a love song between two people. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. My beloved is the Hebrew word, Jodi. it is. It describes the person that means the most to you in the world. That's, that's a simple way to say it. It just means the person who means the most to you in the world. It, it, it can be friend, uncle, aunt, husband, wife, child, just the person that means the most to you. And that's, that's the person for me there. She is the one blonde in the whole group. She, is, uh, we're, she has followed me all over the globe sharing the gospel. And being a preacher, being a Methodist preacher, this is with Methodists in North Kenya. And before you can enter their village, you must dance with them because enemies won't dance together. And so if you won't dance with them, you're an enemy, you can't come in the village. But if you dance with them, isn't that a beautiful ceremony? You can come in. And so, of course, Prudy is the first one to go out and give it a try with our friend, Anne. And, uh, And we were welcomed and admitted to their village. She's following me all over the world. You think about this text and it sounds like it's for young people and scholars often say that, that this text is is that because of the words. You get that image of the stag, the young man's a stag and the young woman's beautiful like the fields and the flowers. And, and there's a lot of athletic stuff because the stag's jumping around, bounding through the hills, full of love. And you kind of think young people, right? But in the last few years, I've come to wonder about that. I've come to think that maybe this is a text about a couple who's hung together and stood the test of time. Who understands what intimacy is and how to forgive and still find joy in every moment. And I would encourage you, whatever relationship you're in, to know that you were created for intimate relationship, to practice forgiveness, and to share joy. We were discussing this passage the other night in Love Languages class under words of affirmation and the class nailed it. We read through the whole thing and the class nailed it and they said, oh, they've been apart and they're coming back together and and they're so filled with joy and love and excitement and that's right. That's exactly what the text says. Every day, I look forward to the moment I can go home and be with my wife and she tells me every day, She's excited and waiting for me to come. Five times this year, I've watched her taken away in an ambulance, not knowing what would happen. And am thankful to you and your prayers. We're getting past that now. She was in first service today. We're at that place. And through it all, we still know joy. We're closer than we have ever been. And we share this passage every night because this passage, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now, the winter is past, The rain is over and gone. Describes winter in Israel. It's when the storms come. Think of the stormy season in Oklahoma. And the passage says, The storms have ended. Now the flowers are blooming and spring is here. And we're filled with joy and hope. So each night, my wife and I end our day holding hands and saying But now the winter is past and the rain is over and gone May God bless you and your relationships May you find the intimacy that God created you to know in forgiveness and in joy We join me now in the Lord's prayer Our Father